Welcome to the Kyperion Commentary Podcast, where each week we have a discussion with a Kyperion contributor or guest about a published article or current event. This is episode 15, introducing new Kyperion contributor Chris Wiley. Hi, my name is Dustin Messer, Kyperion Commentary contributor and the host for today's episode. Well, we are so happy to be here with the newest uh, Kyperion contributor, Chris Wiley. Chris is a pastor uh, in New England. You've probably read him before. He's written for Touchstone, Modern Wrath, uh, Sacred Architecture, Imaginative, Imaginative Conservative, Front Porch Republic. I think the first thing I read from Chris was in Front, uh, Front Porch Republic and recently published for National Review as well. Uh, a widely written and widely read fellow, a graduate of Harvard Divinity, Gordon Conwell. Chris, thanks for being here. Well, I'm glad to be here. I just need to correct you on one thing. I didn't actually graduate from Harvard Divinity. I dropped out. So Okay. Well but I'm I'm a you know, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, all those guys. So lots of good dropouts from <laughs> That is that's probably a high high praise for yourself, Harvard <laughs> And of course we are joined as well uh, by Yuri Brito. Yuri, how are you, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. Very excited about this interview. Yeah, so am I. I've read Chris, as I said, uh, for a long time. But Chris, I don't know a ton about you personally. Will you tell us a little bit just about where you're from and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I uh, Well, I'm 55 years old. I've been here in New England over 30 years. And um, I uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home. I My father was an academic. My mother was a very artsy kind of person. Um, we grew up, I grew up around, surrounded by reproductions of Michelangelo and stuff like that. It always freaked me out. Michelangelo's Moses with the horns. We had that, but we had lots of stuff like that. And, uh, and, uh, my father was at Washington U in St. Louis. And before that he was at the university of Buffalo, but I'll try to make it short. Um, my father was uh, what I call ABC, anything but Christianity. And this was the 60s, uh, early 70s. So he was a seeker. He got involved in lots of different stuff. He was in the Baha'is for a while. Um, he was a, uh, a uh, Unitarian Universalist for a while. And then he got involved in Scientology. Wow. And he's there now. He's in Scientology today. He was a member of the Guardian, kind of the clandestine group in Scientology. And... Um, so anyway, he deserted our family when I was 11 years old, and it was uh, my mother was in and out of mental institutions after that. So I became a ward of the state. I grew up in projects uh, after that. Spent some time in a foster home, mm-hmm. and uh, my best friend was a Nazarene preacher's kid, and so I hung out with him all the time. And because he had to go to church, I went to church, and it was during. Uh, you know, over the course of that friendship that I came to hear the gospel. Of course, it was, uh, uh, I'm reformed now, but, uh, you know, it was a Wesleyan environment. And, um, but I actually spent first uh, 20 years of my ministry as a Nazarene elder. I went to Nazarene, uh, the Nazarene College in Boston, and I eventually ended up teaching for them. And then I went to, uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary, then I went to Gordon Conwell, then I went to Harvard Divinity. I went to Harvard Divinity because the folks there at the school I was teaching at were interested in bringing me on to the faculty, and, you know, I had to get a PhD. And so I uh, 
And that's, that's a whole kind of interesting story. I was invited, actually, to, to attend uh, HDS by Harvey Cox. Huh. I don't know if that name is familiar yeah. to me. But Harvey a, was a, a, you know, he befriended me. And, and um, anyway, it, it was an interesting experience there. But I, I realized that I, that I really wasn't supposed to be an academic, and, and so I that's why I left. I mean, the only reason I was there was because I, I wanted to pursue that you know, the course of study so I could, and my interest was philosophy and ethics. But anyway, I kind of takes you all over the place, but that gives you a little picture of me. And when you, so when you went to Harvard, were you reformed at this point? What was that journey from Nazarene to reformed like? Well, it was, uh, I was kind of midway at, at that point. I was, in, I was actually in urban ministry for 10 years. I, I lived in Boston and in Cambridge and uh, was involved with a lot of uh, stuff, cooperative stuff across the denominational alliance. And I always, you know, found my interactions with the reform guys very enriching. And, uh, you know, I wrote, actually wrote for, for Harvey Kahn down at Westminster at one point. He had a little journal called Urban Mission, and, and I wrote for that. And uh, he was very gracious to me. Uh, I wrote this screed. <laughs> and he wrote me back and said, you know, I really like it, but I can't publish it. It's just... You name names and embarrassing people. So uh, he gave me a second chance to kind of clean it up, and so I did, and, and he published it. But that was a good relationship, and I, I met a number of other reform guys over the, you know over my years doing urban ministry stuff. Uh, I had a little institute that was connected to different institutions in the city, and and um, so it was through those relationships that I was challenged to think about some things in ways I hadn't thought before, thought about before, so, and. And so I just kind of gravitated in that direction over time. And I was pretty well connected in the Nazarene world. I wrote Sunday school curriculum for them and books and stuff, and I knew everybody. And I could see some things going on there that I wasn't willing to sign on to. I was part of backroom conversations. And I was kind of, you know, I was kind of, I was, uh, kind of you know, cutting-edge mercy ministry, multicultural ministry, that kind of stuff. And so I could see where some important people were taking the denomination. So the combination of kind of the push out and the pull of the reform world occurred. And I actually uh, was a pastor on Cape Cod for about eight years after my time in Boston. It was during that period that I I really uh, took the step in, in the direction of the reform faith and realized that I couldn't continue in the Nazarene church. And, and it was a great church. The church I had on Cape Cod, wonderful people. We, were, you know, we built a million dollar addition, all kinds of neat stuff. But I, re- I just knew I had to resign, so I resigned. Yeah. Well, you said the journey to being reformed involved thinking about things in a way you'd never thought about them before. And I read your new book, Man of the House. Right. I've told several people that I don't think there is another book quite like this. It's almost a devotion. Devotion meets home economics, home ec. <laughs> would, would you tell us a little bit about the origin of the book and maybe some of it, its distinctiveness? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to. I uh, A number of things kind of came together for me uh, for that. My own background, coming from a broken home, gave me, uh, you know, created in me a strong interest in understanding how Households function not just that a kind of James Dobson everybody feels warm and happy and belongs kind of way, but in an older way that I 
and, and I was turned on to this by Christopher Lash. Uh, Christopher Lash has been a big influence on me. He wrote Culture of Narcissism and, you know, uh, True and Only Heaven, uh, The Revolt of the Elites. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was a pretty significant public intellectual in the 70s and 80s. And he said a few things in some of his books that gave me a window into a, into the pre-modern household and how it functioned as an economic and political institution. And I just had never thought about that. And then later, you know, through my reading, you know, I came across people like Alan Carlson, who's a friend now. And, and you know, I, 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 anything that had to do with sort of the structure of a household, as an, particularly as, a, as an economic institution that requires a, a kind of a, a structure and an authority structure to, to keep it going, that fascinated me, and the more I dug into it, the more I realized that this is, we've just, we have amnesia now. We don't even know what a household is. So like when we look at New Testament household codes, we're, we're offended. We're like, how could, you know, anybody think like this, you know, submit and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's because the households we live in today are more or less just sort of voluntary associations. You know, they're just, places where you park at the end of the day and relax and why should anybody boss anybody around and that kind of stuff. But before the industrial revolution, before the modern sort of modernity as we know it now, um, a great deal hinged upon uh, the father and his being productive so that he could provide for his household. And And that meant everybody working together, wife, children, extended family and so forth. And once, you're, once, you, once you see that, you just see it all over the place. You see it in the Bible, you see it in the history of the West, and you're like, Why, how did we ever miss this? So anyway, that's kind of the story behind that. Yeah, that's helpful. I'll tell you, I, uh, I teach a 10th grade worldview class, and I read through, not quite the whole book, but the key excerpts from the whole book with my 10th grade class, and they found it just incredibly stimulating and it was helpful for conversation. So I would really recommend it. It's called man of the house. And the subtitle is a handbook for building a shelter that will last. Uh, we'll link to it in the, uh, underneath the, the podcast here in the show notes. Yuri, do you have a question? Yeah, Chris, uh, I have a, a question. I'm, I'm perusing through some of the book as we speak here and, I'm wondering, as a minister, how do you begin to implement some of these uh, very rich uh, biblical ideas into an environment that is generally allergic to it? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of connecting with guys uh, one-on-one, I think, and then just pursuing, uh, you know, a line of thought with them. This may strike you as a little weird, but my church is really not up to speed in everything I write about. Um, and it's not because I try to hide it or anything. It's just, it's just I, I don't talk a lot about it. I don't, I don't, I don't, don't kind of send the message. You better buy my book. I'm your pastor, right? <laughs> like that, you know. So, uh, uh, in fact, you know, one of the things I've observed over the over the years as, as I've written is is that they sometimes think of those things as, uh, you know, like when I mention them, they, I, I get the feeling that they think I'm bragging or something. So I just don't even talk about it. But at a, on a one-on-one level, and and if you listen to my preaching, it's, it's all through the preaching. You know, it's it's there. But if but if you uh, you know, I don't have like a like a program. 
I don't have like a thing where, okay, all the guys are coming out on, on Saturday mornings and we're going to read my book and we're going to all work hard at trying to do this. Right. Mostly what I do is I just talk to the guys because I, I really focus on the guys in the church. We've got a very strong uh, church and the balance between men and women, it really is 50-50. I mean, I've got guys who come without their wives. I mean, that's uh, unusual, but I have situations like that. And uh, just because the wife is an unbeliever, and that's almost like the reverse, you often yeah. see. And, you know, I try to cycle through the church and talk to guys, go out to lunch with them, you know, breakfast or whatever. And I'm, I'm pretty, pretty um, connected with them and know what they're going through. And so, you know, as the stuff that they're dealing with in life kind of, eru- you know, rises to the surface, particularly as it relates to their family and job and that kind of thing. You know, we talk about stuff. Now, they all they all know that I'm a big believer in household economics and that, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of uh, the father as the you know, head of the house and stuff like that. But that, that's not a surprise. That's one of the things that I think attracts people to our church. So you might you might be surprised, too. I, I you know, our, our, our region of the country has this reputation for liberalism, but. Uh, people live their personal lives almost kind of in, oftentimes, uh, almost uh, schizophrenically with their politics. So you'll come across a lot of, say, maybe blue-collar guys who are union types, but, you know, when it comes to their homes and how they order their lives, they're very conservative, even socially conservative. So, and then the Yankees, you know, the old-school you know, people I mean, you know, Calvin Coolidge kind of Yankees. Um, they're still around. Yeah, kind of squirrely bunch, but uh, they're a lot of fun. And uh, they resonate with it real well. Chris, we're, we're delighted to have you join the uh, Kyperian Commentary team. Um, how do you find time? I'm a, I'm a pastor also, and so is Dustin. So we're three pastors talking here, and I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts. How do you navigate your writing experience with uh, some of your for your pastoral call? Do you find both of them um, uh, as part of one and the same, or do you sort of bifurcate these two concepts? Well, that's something I, I think about all the time. Um, I've got a very understanding church, and it's an unusual place in many respects, but uh, they they really honor the pastor's study, and they don't really think that all of my writing needs to be justified to them, mm. which I know is not something that everybody enjoys. Um, but the uh, I think they kind of think about the work I do as kind of the ministry of the church, as something they're supporting as I try to reach out to the world. Mm-hmm. You know, So, for example, I've got a little thing uh, that we do once a month, called Theology Pub, where we, we go to a local pub and we invite people from the community to come and hear a speaker. Uh, um, usually it's an academic believer. And we don't even talk, we don't even put it in the bulletin of the church or anything like that. It's just That's just one more thing that we're, we're doing kind of out in the community. So they, they kind of think about, I think... <laughs> okay. I, what I'm doing with my writing, which I like with like my, my fiction... As kind of, oh, that's Pastor Chris, you know, he's got a ministry to, I don't know. <laughs> and they're, they're very, but I think, you know what, but 
but I've also got a very nice relationship with the with the church. You know, they're, like I said, they're real supportive, and and I, I tend to I spend my mornings writing, so it's understood in the church that that you know up till about noon, I'm you can't really get me to do anything, <laughs> and then lunchtime is usually the time where I'm meeting with people, you know, and going out to lunch with them. And then afternoons, I'm in the office at the church. I've got a home office and I've got my church office. And then, you know, in the evenings, of course, there are meetings and what have you. But uh, my church probably, if, if you were to ask them, you know, what's the most important thing that the pastor does, they'd say preach. Hmm. So they really expect high quality preaching. And I try to I try to give them that. And then if you were to ask them, you know, what's the second most important thing the pastor does? They'd say pray, I think. And then if they if they ask the third thing, they'd say visit the sick, maybe evangelize. So they see me doing all those things, and so I think they're happy. Uh, they, they keep giving me raises. <laughs> it's usually a sign that they're happy, you know. So yeah, so I, I think it works really well, and I'm not sure. I'm just happy to be here. I mean, I, I kind of, in God's providence, found myself here. And um, it's hard to imagine a better setup. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned uh, the writing of fiction. I know you have a series of young adult uh, novels coming out with Canon Press in the next year or so. Would you tell us a little bit about those and just how fiction relates to your general ministry and writing? Yeah, well... I really kind of think of myself primarily as a, as a, an artist, uh, even you know more than a scholar. And uh, I have a background in the visual arts. I went to art school and stuff. So I kind of think visually, and I like telling stories. And the the series that Canon is publishing is entitled "The Weirdling Cycle." And the first book was actually self published a number of years ago. And that's a whole story in itself. But uh, it ended up winning some awards and was actually, uh, I got an agent because I won those awards. And the uh, then it got farmed in Europe. It got sent over to Europe and it ended up being published in Turkey. So I've got all these Turkish fans. But, wow. yeah. It's really good, Chris, because we've been trying to break into the Turkish market. That's right. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Here's the funny thing about it. You know, I, I've got a fan page in Turkey on, on Facebook. And so whenever anybody likes my book, I check them out. And I, you know what I discovered? Nerds in Turkey just look like American nerds, except they look Turkish. You know, Muslim nerds, Christian nerds, they're all the same. That's fantastic. But uh, so anyway, the, the, the series is, I, the elevator pitch is uh, R.L. Stein meets Plato. And it... Um, you know, I, it's it's been well received, and anyways, Canon uh, picked it up, and they're reissuing the first book. I, the second book is already written, and then the books three and four will be. So they're going to come out every year. So this is you know this year will be you know book one, then next year book two, and up to 2020. So uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a book. You know, kind I could describe it for you if you want me to, but. It's a kind of an abduction story where a kid is, you know, stolen from our world. Like, you know, I know back when I was a kid, you know, they had these pictures of, of kids on milk cartons, missing kids. I don't know if you yeah. ever saw stuff like that. Well, this is where all the missing kids end up. It's in another universe where, where they're 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 uh, abducted by boogeymen and taken to another universe and raised by the guardians. 
So, and then that world is modeled on Plato's Republic. And if you've ever read the Republic and thought about the Guardians, they're pretty creepy. Yeah. So, so it's kind of playing with that creepiness. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. All of your writing in the past has fascinated me. I'm excited that some of that writing will continue on Kyperian commentary. Uh, Chris Wiley, also known as the Turkish Delight, it has been <laughs> a delight for us to talk with you, and we're looking forward to your contributions. Thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, glad to do it. All right, thanks, Yuri. Hey, thank you, Dustin. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Yuri. Good to talk to you.